Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is episode 42 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everybody's having a good week out there. Sorry for missing a week with episodes, but I've had a lot going on. But we're not going to focus on that. We're going to actually just go ahead and get straight into the episode. This week, we're taking a look at 1982's The Thing, which is brought to the show from a friend of mine, Drew Meyer. Uh, Drew and I met when I was a teenager. I don't remember specifically how old I was, or I don't want to remember, uh, because that was a long time ago. But Drew and I uh, lived in separate states, so unfortunately we met and we kind of hit it off right away, but we weren't able to be the really close, fast friends that we probably could have been, because we have so much in common and so many shared interests, uh, as you'll hear over the course of the podcast, you know, movies and role-playing games and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, thanks to social media, we've been able to connect and... and chat and and get to have him come on my podcast and boy this is honestly one of my absolute favorite conversations that I've had so far and I've had some really good conversations in there but Drew brings the passion for this movie not just about the movie but he's a film historian when it comes to the thing and Everything around it, the short story that in, or the novella that inspired it and different alternate takes on that novella and connections that it has here and there. Uh, we spend a lot of time not only talking about the movie, but about, you know, kind of the history of the movie and the evolution and the making of and that kind of stuff. And it ends up just becoming a fantastic conversation. As I mentioned at the end of the show, we easily could have talked for another couple of hours about this movie. Uh, I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but I, I kind of want to keep the podcast to a reasonable length. So uh, I, this was f a lot of fun, and I would love to sit down and chat more movies with Drew. Cannot thank him enough for coming on the show. But here you go as we look at 1982's John Carpenter's The Thing with Drew Meyer. So how you been? I mean, good days and bad days. Clearly, the world is is ready for an invasion of a, a shape-shifting creature to kind of, you know, take us to that next step of evolution. Uh, <laughs> I, me. you know, you know, people keep joking about that that's coming, and I really kind of feel like if aliens were to come to invade, they would look at our planet and go, "No thanks. Yep, yeah, we're, we're 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 good. We're good. We don't need this." Yeah, we got Godzilla like just backing back up into the ocean, you know, flipping us the bird, all of the oatmeal cartoon, right? And just going like, <laughs> this is this is one of those things where you'd think, oh, this is a perfect time. We're weak. Uh, we are currently living in the scenario of this story, in that you know any one of us can be infected at any time, and you wouldn't know it until it was too late, kind of a scenario. But instead of being totally paranoid and pointing fingers, we're just just being oblivious and being buttheads. I mean, uh, so. Yeah, I've had several movies selected since this started that, you know, you'd watch in a normal, whatever normal is, you'd watch in a normal environment and wouldn't really give it a second thought. But then in the context of our current setting, you watch and you go, yee. Yeah, and, yeah. And, it, to the to the point, uh, my girlfriend and I watched this together, and 
she made kind of a snide remark because I, I had made a big deal when The Cabin in the Woods came out. I wrote an editorial about what Joss Whedon was kind of saying about millennials with that because – you know, they, they, they get to the end and they have to sacrifice themselves in order to save the world. And they decide, no, thanks. You know, that yeah. they, 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 the world can burn rather than sacrifice themselves. And this is the opposite where they're willing to kind of sacrifice themselves to make sure nothing bad happens. And yet what reality is showing us is the cabin in the woods had it a lot more right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's terrifying to think that in, in this scenario where we find the, all these end of the world movies and video games and whatnot, you know, what you didn't think that the world would start because people just going, no, nah, you know, what? I don't believe the world is ending. I don't, I don't believe that this is an actual, like it's just ignorance. It's not ignorance that we just didn't know it was happening, but it's like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All that information. No, that's not, that's not real. Science isn't a real thing. We don't have to listen to science, which is what makes this movie so amazing in that because we're dealing with a situation where our protagonists are all scientists. It's not like your 1950s sci-fi movies where you always have the hero who's almost always going to be a military dude, you know, his girlfriend, and then the one scientist who just happens to be an expert on whatever subject is threatening the world at the time. <laughs> This is a film that is not a bunch of uh, sexy teenagers who are getting picked off one by one. And it's not a group of soldiers and action heroes. This is almost entirely made up of intelligent scientists. And the threat that is attacking them is not a mindless monster. It's not using typical horror tropes in that, you know, we, we see uh, Jason slowly loping towards the scantily clad teenager, you know, like, like there's no way all she has to do is run in one direction and not trip and she should be fine. And yet he always manages to catch up with them. This doesn't have to follow up. This is a, an intelligent creature that's picking them off one by one that is using science. It's, it's, it's a really impressive feat uh, for storytelling because nothing else had been done like it uh, yeah. until that point. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get into the movie then. Uh, so uh, just some background, you know, you and I talked for a while about what movie you wanted to do. Yes, you did pitch did. at one point uh, Day of the Doctor, which I said no to because it's a made for TV movie. Right. And then I, and then I proceeded to do a made for TV movie and I was totally waiting for you to call me out on that. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I slid that one past you. So then you were looking at the numbers and saw that I was coming up. I was in the 40s and you said, can I be episode 42? And I'm like, sure. So why was 42 so important? Well, um, 42 is my favorite number. That's uh, the number. I had baseball jerseys of 42. 42 is the name of my improv jersey. Uh, and 42 is my favorite number because it has everything to do with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is on the whole, depending on my mood, my favorite book. Uh, and it was introduced to me at a fairly early age by a gentleman by the name of Rafe Telsch. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, when you asked me to be on the show and, and you're like, hey, you're going to be potentially be on episode 42. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy means so much to me. You're the one who introduced me to me. Like it made perfect sense for me to choose uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. So, of course, instead, I, I chose John Carpenter's The Thing because even given that perfect setup to talk about hitchhikers. I would much rather talk about this movie. <laughs> In fact, given the choice, 
I would much rather talk about this movie than almost any other movie. And that was what caused, because when you asked me way back in February to come on the podcast, I was like, well, what, have you talked about this one? No, no, it's you choose. Well, what about this movie? No, no, you choose. There's like a list of like 30 movies I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and, the, and the only reason I didn't start my pitch with John Carpenter's The Thing is I have talked about this movie before with other people and other podcasts, but I haven't talked about it with you. Uh, and uh, it's been a while. And it really, more than anything else, it's just an excuse to sit back and watch uh, watch this film again. I don't really need an excuse to talk about this movie or to watch this movie, but it is nice. Yeah, no, I, I haven't sat down and watched this movie in a long time. So, you know, it was great to have an excuse, as you put it. Right. So we are talking about 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster, starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Mazur, Donald Moffat, Joe Polis, and Thomas Waits. Itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gotta listen to Gary! He can beat one of those things! Yeah. Hey, there's, you know, there's something really interesting about that cast you just named. Oh, yeah. There's not a woman in the bunch. No, there's not. Uh, and, and and that's actually something I did want to kind of talk about is, you know, the only female presence you have is the voice of the chess computer at the very beginning, which is voiced by Carpenter, well, Carpenter's wife, but also someone he used frequently in his films, Adrian Barbeau. Yeah. Uh, but that's the only female presence you get in this movie. Yeah, there, there is uh, in the background in one moment a, I don't know if it's a gong show. It's Anyway, they're watching old game shows. Or the, the sad thing is like you're stuck in Antarctica and you can't get cable clearly so they just watch vhs copies of old game shows you know that they have they know exactly who's going to win uh and how they're going to win and yet they're still watching it there's a certain level of monotony and and it adds to the kind of nihilism of the game where it's like (laughs) well and and he even stops it because i've seen this one before and it's like dude i'm betting depending on how long you've been out here and we don't have a sense of how long they've been out there but depending on that you've seen all of them oh yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah. so i always start by how do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it how do you sell someone who doesn't know the thing on seeing it 
it's tricky um, because I don't want to give anything away about the film. Uh, so I, I, I you know, it's funny because I've, I've pitched this so many times, but I always curate the pitch to my audience member, right? Like, so let's say it was, <laughs> it was you and you had never seen this. First off, I would be like, what? You've never watched John Carpenter's The Thing. It has John Carpenter's name in it. That should be enough. And it normally is. Um, this is a horror movie. This is the closest uh, a film I think has ever gotten to true Lovecraftian horror, especially up until that point in time. I think, now I take that back. Uh, yeah, up until 1982, this was cl- definitely the closest thing that you're going to get to a Lovecraft story. Uh, clearly Annihilation from a couple years back has got those bases covered now. But um, this is John Carpenter at the height of his directorial career. Uh, and I and I say that by talent more so than by what he's been making, because at this point in time, this is his first big budget film. Right, right. Uh, but this is... Uh, I think the best example of John Carpenter at John Carpenter. And and this is, again, my opinion. I'm, I'm sure other John Carpenter aficionados can argue this. And, and I may have at one point in time, maybe even before I truly came around to loving this film, would have argued against that. But uh, nowadays, I'm, I'm sold on this fact. Um, it is possibly the best use of practical effects, special effects, I've ever seen as far as grotesquerie is concerned. Oh, yeah. Um, it is true to the original story, which I hadn't read until maybe about five or six years back, which made me appreciate the film even more. It is a Cold War paranoia film. Uh, it is a suspense thriller with amazing special effects. It'll scare the bejesus out of you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and more so than anything else, this is a film that will stay with you. Yes. Like the thing itself, it will burrow itself into you and you will never know when you're going to think about this film until it's happening, right? Like this is this is one of those things where like I could never watch this movie again after today. But 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, I'm probably going to have another conversation and based off of who's watching it then or who I'm having that conversation with, it will inspire me to go back and watch it. And when I do watch it, I'm going to see something new. The conversation I have with you today may make me think of something that I had never thought of before. Like that's the enduring legacy of John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, it's interesting that you 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 keep bringing up the Lovecraftian aspect of it because it's, it's not inspired by Lovecraft. No. Um, it is what Carpenter considers to be the first film in his Apocalypse trilogy. Right. Uh, the second being Prince of Darkness and the third being In the Mouth of Madness, which mm-hmm. is based on Lovecraftian work. So it's kind of, to me, it's fascinating that in what he considers to be an Apocalypse trilogy, he starts with this and then culminates in an actual Lovecraftian type story. Yeah. I mean, I think, have you read the original story, um, John W. Campbell's Who Goes There? I have not. Okay. You should read it. And I have seen, you know, the original adaptation, The Thing from Outer Space. Right. Uh, which which is a brilliant film in its own right. Mm-hmm. But I, but it's this is one of those cases where this isn't really a remake because it takes it in such a different direction. Yeah. Well, this movie is incredibly close to the, the short story. There's... Uh, I mean, there's a lot more gore. The in the story, the thing itself is um, psychic can actually read minds, and that allows it to both take on its physical form and take on absorb the psyche 
of the individuals, which, uh, which is pretty cool. But, you know, Campbell wrote this in 1938. And at this time you're dealing with Lovecraft and it's, you know, the setting of Antarctica, very reminiscent of Lovecraft's in the, the mountains of madness. So while the film itself may not be inspired by Lovecraft, who was a terrible person, but a great writer. Uh, you got to put that in there. You know, it's, it's clearly it's one of the things that that we as a society are dealing with is is understanding an appreciation of the work, separating it from the artist or sometimes choosing not to separate it from the artist. Um, and this is something that you know we have to deal with when we, we talk about Lovecraft. We always have to mention that he was a, a racist and a bigot and uh, not an overall great guy, but great storyteller. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think Campbell's story is arguable uh, whether or not it's it's uh, influenced by Lovecraft. I think it was. It feels that way. And it's one of the reasons why uh, I think I was drawn to this story in the first place is that sort of the the nihilistic aspect, the the feeling of being isolated, which is sort of the cornerstone of Lovecraft, the the isolation and the the otherworldly terror. Yeah, I mean it's you already brought up the idea that these are these aren't this isn't military you know you know this this is is more kind of regular people i mean they're scientists um but watching it and i guess because i was watching it for the podcast it kind of put me in that mindset but it's very reminiscent of other movies that we've covered on the podcast before uh alien right. uh, leviathan mm-hmm. in and and the the reason it reminded me of that was more so you've got a group of characters that you've got to get the audience to identify with quickly. And so rather than throw a bunch of names at the audience, you very quickly make it clear what their role is. Right. So you may not remember that this guy, this character's name is Clark, but you remember he's the dog handler because of the way he acts with the dogs. Um, very now it's obviously very easy to go, oh, well, that's Wilford Brimley, but you know, they, right. they, they set up his, well, I mean, and he was recognizable at the time too, but they, all of them, they set up really quickly identifiable character traits, identifiable roles so that you very quickly fall into the surrounding without necessarily being able to point out the names of all the individual characters. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this movie 30 plus times. And even prepping for this, for the conversation, I've got a little note explaining like each character's name, the actor who played them and their job uh, at the outpost. But I feel like I have to in some ways disagree with you and agree with uh, Roger Ebert because what Carpenter did, which is kind of a weird thing is yes, we do have individuals who when they are inside and their masks are off, we can tell them apart. And we sort of get an idea. But I mean, I couldn't tell you necessarily that Bennings is the meteorologist, right? Like we don't, he talks about the snow, but there's snow everywhere. When they go outside, everyone's wearing a mask and it's almost impossible to tell who's who. They're all relatively the same height, you know, the same build. And that is something that is scripted specifically because that plays into the paranoia. Because when you see somebody silhouetted, you know, across a field of white, you can't tell who it is. You know, you can't see their skin, you can't see their face, you can't see their hair. Sometimes in the movie, we only get to see their silhouette. And even then, it's not actually their silhouette. And so that right. builds to the paranoia as well. I mean, there's do you, do you want to explain that about it's not even their silhouette? Oh, okay, sure. Um, uh, in possibly one of the best acted scenes in the entire film, 
and again, spoilers if you haven't watched Jordan Carpenter's <laughs> The Thing. Uh, the Thing in the body of a dog, played by the actor Jed the Dog, who's part um, husky and uh, part Malamute and part uh, wolf. I mean, in the it's kind of terrifying, just slowly and determinedly walking down this hallway, looking in each door until finally it looks into someone's bedroom and you see their silhouette and their silhouette turns rec- easily recognizing that they know the dog, but then we fade to black. So we don't know as an audience at that time on the first viewing, what is going to happen after that moment. But Carpenter, who's like, well, I don't want to give away, you know, who's the thing or who's being taken over. They used a member of the film crew rather than any of the actors. So that's not one of our main characters, not our ensemble casts. Right. Which is brilliant so, to it's do that. Uh, so smart. It's so smart. There's so many intelligent choices made in this film. There's some And, and even, even having the dog, the, the thing in the shape of the dog at the very beginning uh, right. is a brilliant move because, uh, you know, I was thinking as I was watching it this time, what a brilliant move, because when you see a dog being chased by this helicopter with guns being shot at it as a, as a human being, you immediately side with the dog, right? We love dogs. I mean, we love exactly. We love dogs. So obviously those are bad people because they are shooting at this dog. And in reality, <laughs> they're trying to save not only themselves, but as they get closer to this new base, uh, they're trying to save them from this horror. That is the thing that just happens to be in the form of a dog at that time. Right. And if you don't speak Norwegian, you have no idea what's going on. If you speak Norwegian, the whole plot of the movie is given to you in a very short period of time, right? The thing is like, <laughs> no, get away, you fools. That's not a dog. It's a thing shaped like a dog. Get the hell out of there. And he starts firing at it, right? So, um, yeah. 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 Subtitles. If you watch it with the subtitles, there's actually, it'll say like, in Norwegian, and then it'll explain what it's being said. And you're like, well, that's that's kind of a shame, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did something that's never been done before, which is you referenced Ebert before I even got to the critical reviews. So let's pull in the critical side. Um, I- I'm assuming you've read Ebert's review at this point. Many times. The movie sits at 84% at Rotten Tomatoes, but only 57% at Metacritic. Uh, Entertainment Weekly did rank this as the 12th scariest movie of all time. And as always, pull in a negative and a positive review. Roger Ebert is the negative review, uh, which I-, I should also say he does say he it's not a bad movie in his review, but he does give it a what we consider to be a negative review. He says, I found it disappointing for two reasons. The superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior of the scientists on that icy outpost. Characters have never been Carpenter's strong point. He says he likes his movies to create emotions in his audiences, and I guess he'd rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personalities of his characters. This time, though, despite some roughed-out typecasting and a few reliable stereotypes, the drunk, the psycho, the hero, he has populated his ice station with people whose primary purpose in life is to get jumped on from behind. (laughs) The few scenes that develop characterizations are overwhelmed by the scenes in which the men are just setups for an attack by the thing. Which obviously you've already stated you don't necessarily completely agree with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's some, there's some for for smart people. There's some pretty stupid actions. Um, at one point in time, McCready scares one of the his fellow crew members um, because their door is open and their back is to the door, which is at that point in time in the film is clearly a mistake. Even if they're carrying <laughs> a bottle of acid to defend themselves. But I, I want to point out too that Ebert gave it two and a half out of four stars. So while that's not a great review, 
he definitely goes on to, to say there are some redeeming qualities, usually Robotine special effects, um, Dean Kundi's cinematography, the location shots. Gene Siskel, uh, both of them were like, this is not a perfect film, but Siskel really focused on the building paranoia and the thriller aspect of it and sort of this uh, aspect of McCarthyism, which I, is kind yes. of funny as I'm watching this film when I, the last time before we actually settled on the thing, I said, listen, we could do the thing or we can do Manchurian Candidate. There's two films I really want to talk about at this moment, which is another film about McCarthyism. Like this is great. <laughs> you know, we're talking about scientists at an Arctic base. You got to wonder why do they have so many guns? Well, they clearly have guns because it's the 1980s. They're fairly close to probably a, in this story, there's a Soviet base available. And I, I think maybe in the prequel film, which is garbage, um, <laughs> there's an emphasis on the fact that there are probably uh, Soviet bases fairly close by. So the guns are there to defend themselves. The flamethrowers most likely are there to thaw equipment and not actually used as weapons. But boy, howdy do they. So yeah, yeah, I, I think everyone had at least something good to say. At least, sorry, I'm gonna take that back. Everyone clearly did not. This <laughs> almost ruined Carpenter's career, and most of the actors involved in this this film stated that you know like Keith David I think was four years between this and the next movie that he was a part of, right? Like it, there's there's some gaps. This did not do well. This was uh, no, you know, no. I mean, it made a profit, but it did not do well. And we can talk about why that is. I find the failure of this film to be fascinating conversation this you know like i i would almost talk about the culture that this film was released in and its ensuing legacy is almost as interesting a conversation as the film itself but that oh, gets agreed. a little bit more meta, meta <laughs> in there. but no i mean they they likened carpenter to a pornographer of violence yes yeah i saw that really heavy i mean like and he said that's probably what impacted his mo him most in his career. And he listed uh, other movies that he had that were failures and said, you know, those didn't bother me as much as Pornographer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a good film. Like, I, this is one of those films that when it came out, I mean, think about this. It, and it was also 38 years ago. Uh, and the time of recording was like two weeks ago was his 38th anniversary. This came out like two or three weeks after E.T. was released. So, of course, we're talking about the most popular film of all time, at least as far as, <laughs> as how much profit had been made. People are bringing their families in to see these films about, you know, a boy and his friendly alien. There's a, ultimately a hopeful message at the end of that one. And the thing is not. I mean, it no. is <laughs> diametrically opposed in every way. This is the antithesis of E.T., thank God. Well, the thing e. is, is very horrible. much... Cold War. I mean, you're you're mentioning the McCarthyism, but it's also very much a product of the Cold War era, yeah. where ET is allowing you to escape from that. This is embracing the existence of that and saying, "Here it is applied on the screen." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're rooting for your heroes uh, in true horror fashion. Like the heroes die. I mean, and and. I don't know if you and I would be having a conversation about this film if we didn't have the final shot that we'd have. 
we can talk about that in a little bit. You know? Yeah, let's hold off on yeah. that. <laughs> Let but, me pull in the positive review. Yeah, please um, do. Because there is there is a positive review. I mean, there's several positive reviews out there. And actually, as far as archival goes, it was harder to find negative reviews, which I think is part of our revisionist history where it's like, oh, the movie's popular now. Well, let's let's hide the fact that so many critics didn't like it. But mm-hmm. bringing in the positive review, this came, comes from James Berardinelli from Real Views. And he writes, one apt comparison to the thing is Ridley Scott's Alien, which came out a few years earlier. Both movies are in many ways cut from the same cloth and owe their inspiration to the Campbell short story. Alien is more polished and features better detailed characters, but there are a lot of similarities. The nightmarish creature remains hidden for much of the movie. The crew is isolated and trapped. One character rises out of the ensemble to take control, and a lot of the action takes place in dark, shadowy spaces. Alien has been described as a haunted house in space movie, indicating the way it straddles the horror and science fiction genres. The Thing does the same thing, but with an additional twist. It throws in a mystery worthy of Agatha Christie. That element, more than any other, makes this movie unique and worth a viewing by any horror sci-fi fan who has not seen it. You know, it's funny. Uh, I know I must have made this comparison at some point in time, not in this interview, but just in my my head. Um, in 2019, I started reading Agatha Christie for the first time. I had never read any of her stories. And this is essentially, and then there were none. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and and in a perfect example of it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is very easy to compare this to Alien. But keep in mind, Alien is a script that is written after Who Goes There, which was a popular short story. I mean, like this film, the special effects are the only thing that really deviates and, and the time period, right? So like 1938, very different from 1982, but it is essentially the same story. <laughs> so funny because here we are, we're all trapped inside uh, thanks to outbreak. You know, we're all, we're all under quarantine. And as soon as the quarantine started, what quote became super popular? Listen to me. If we break quarantine, we could all die. Ripley's quote from Alien, right? Like yes. it's like that, that kind of sits in your head. And it is very hard to separate this, I'm sure, as an audience member in 1982 from a film that only came out three years ago and really changed the landscape, right? Like, Think about Alien versus Star Wars, where you have this hopeful message and space battles, and then you have this dark, grimy, uh, you know, exactly haunted house in space story. So much so that they changed the tagline of the thing. It was originally, and I love this so much, man is the warmest place to hide. How creepy is that? They changed that. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Well, and the reason is... Because test screenings were so bad and they were comparing it to Alien, they decided, well, what are audiences going to you know, be able to compare this to? We want them to favorably compare it to Alien. So they changed it to the ultimate in Alien terror. Alien's right there in the tagline. But the original tagline for this is, man is the warmest place to hide, written by uh, the author who came up with In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream. So they went to the same person and went, hey, listen, we need a really good tagline. Yours Yours did really well. I can't remember the, the individual's name. I'm not that much of an aficionado of this film, <laughs> which you'll find out it's not true. I just don't remember it at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, 
I, I definitely see, you know, and I mean, I already made the comparison at the beginning of the episode, the, the, the comparison with Alien, because again, it's, it is that, you know, ragtag bunch of people up against something supernatural or otherworldly or whatever. But I love the Agatha Christie reference because you're right. I mean, I, I just inter- was introduced to Agatha Christie a couple of years ago, a little before 2019, but not far before it. And that was exactly the story we had to read uh, for the class that I was taking was, and, and then there were none. And it was like, I was reading it, thinking about how many movies I have watched that are built on that foundation. Right. Yeah, I listened to, uh, I used to have a job that was 40 minutes from home. And so I was listening to an Agatha Christie novel, probably about two a week. I was was going through her entire Poirot collection, but I was trying to go through it linearly, as chronologically, I should say. but skipping all the marples because I wanted to, I was doing the Poirots and the non Poirots. And then when we got to, I was playing on hitting all of marple um, because I feel like when you're dealing with mystery, it's really fun to get into the headspace of a single detective or a single style. And then when you, you go into a different one, it, it mix things up. Right. So I've, I've listened to a couple or read a couple of marple stories, but mostly I'm uh, Poirot and, and the other ones, but, uh, and then there were none is, uh, a brilliant story. And as is this, as is this, and, I, and I, I really do stress, if you like this film, read the original novella. It's, it's a couple of hours read. It's really not that, not that bad. It's a, it's a good sit down read and you will be incredibly impressed at how close they kind of stayed with this because, you know, we, we've got Lancaster's script, but before Lancaster was brought on, Toby Hooper was, was brought on and, that pitch was a dark comedy. Like this yes. is supposed to be a farcical with slapstick humor. And it's kind of like, Oh my God, could you imagine? I mean, I, I can, but I don't want to. <laughs> oh, and another, you know, another um, kind of current events. Not, not only is this only two weeks after it's, 30th anniversary, but Ennio Morricone just passed away. So yes, I watched this on Sunday mm-hmm. and I, I had never noticed uh, until this viewing that this wasn't a John Carpenter score because he scores his own films usually. And Morricone did such a good job of capturing the Carpenter feel for it. Yes. Like, that's, that's what he was going for. So I just always assumed that this was a John Carpenter score. So I watched this on Sunday. I take specific note. That's actually the first thing written down on my notepad is this is an Ennio Morricone score. Yeah. And then on Monday morning, I wake up to the news that he's passed away, which was a little weird feeling that I had just visited one of his films. Yeah, I I have the score I have on on disc and on my computer, and especially when I'm writing something that's a bit horrific or I'm planning on a role playing game that 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 kind of focuses on horror, I'll bring this score out. Um, and it is very much a John Carpenter score, but it is also definitely. <laughs> An Ennio Morricone score. You know, like, you know, you're talking about one of the great composers, if not the top two most memorable composers in in all of cinema history. And you really have, it's kind of amazing when you put all of these pieces together and you kind of look at the gestalt of this thing. Like the fact that it failed is is mind boggling from today's standards, because this is a film that still, I think, and I think critics will back us up on this really still stands out as a masterpiece. And the fact oh, yeah. that it failed, it just makes it feel like it was just ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I, you're not the first person to have brought up possibly doing this movie for the show. You're just sure. the first person to pull the trigger and go through with it. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a big, influential movie. 
so it's it's another one of those, and it's not the only one I've covered. It won't be the only one I've covered, but that it's hard to believe that this was just a box office failure. Yeah, and has really picked up its not only its attention, but I, I guess its influence over time as secondary audiences have discovered it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of those things where you you start reading the history, sort of its legacy, and it was what a fifteen million dollar budget made twenty million dollars. Still not a failure. You know, it didn't lose money. There are certainly films that have lost money that we still talk about, but it was critically panned. But once it showed up uh, on the VHS market, it kind of blew up. Uh, And what's amazing to me is, yes, I love it. And and, and this is some I'm always hesitant to say I have a favorite film. Right. Because like as, as as a cinema fan, like this might be my favorite horror film. It also might be my favorite film that is in color. I think I could I could probably argue that, right? Uh, if we're talking genres, yeah, it's it's definitely I think I think my favorite horror film. But um, the legacy of this is uh, I was a part of a Kickstarter fairly recently for a board game based off of the movie. It's called Who Goes There because uh, Mondo put out the. Uh, infection on outpost 31 a couple of years before that there was a kickstarter fairly recently to um produce a book called frozen hell so if you read the novella of who goes there by by campbell it turns out within the last 10 years someone discovered the full-length novel that he wrote and then went "Mm, i can i could probably do this in a in a shorter so he made a condense it into a novella well they discovered the original manuscript and so they had a Kickstarter. They had an editor. Uh, you can get Frozen Hell, which I don't really like the that title, but you know, there you go. So, like, e- even I don't know what, like, it's thirty eight years after the movie comes out, but like, even after the short story, people are still having these conversations about it. Um, there were video games based off it, and they were supposed to be canonical, canonical video games of it. That's what I was going to say. Is they they made video games based on it that Carpenter said was canonical, but then changed his stance on parts of it, which again ties into the ending, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. (laughs) Uh, You already mentioned the prequel that was made. It was considered a remake slash prequel because it followed the Norwegian team as opposed to this American team. I have not seen that yet. Um, I hate to tell anybody that it's not worth your time to watch something because I fully understand and appreciate that everyone has different tastes. You may get something out of that. I think it was unnecessary because it's not a prequel to the story. It's not reimagining the story. It's it's specifically taking John Carpenter's The Thing and basically remaking it under the guise of being a prequel. But almost beat for beat, it's the same film. Hmm. Um, it's it's not great. Then, then why do we need it? We already have this movie. Because nostalgia is such an important aspect of it. I mean, people want to make a movie. You want to make a horror movie? Well, let's remake one of the most successful, most like highly appreciated film. Uh, and they said, well, what about the thing? You know, let's, let's do that. Well, you can't really remake it. It's, it's, it hasn't been out that long. Well, what if we make it as a prequel? It, it's not, again, it isn't necessary, uh, but you might get something out of it. So there you go. I don't, I don't know. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> there's there's short stories. Um, there's a short story collection called Short Things that uh, came out uh, last year, and I think off October of last year, with a uh, 
I haven't purchased it yet. It's really, I think it's about time that I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> having having just read Watts, thing, The Things, last night, I am now really ready to kind of jump back into this kind of the horror aspect of it. I was I highly recommend that as well. Hey, it's good old boy Mike. This is good old boy Dave. From Sips, Suds, and Smokes. Sips, Suds, and Smokes covers wine, tea, coffee, distilled spirits, whiskey, scotch, beer, cigars. People whose first name starts with Q. Bad fake British accents. And we always take time to make fun of the people of Alabama. Banned once again. It's a one-hour episode that's mildly entertaining for about 22 minutes. I think mildly would be a vast improvement. Well, we do have the only beer show with the Holy Man. We talk about these products and rate them with our unique rating system, like our Suds 5 rating. Do you really have something better to do with your life for an hour than actually listen to this show? What will make them think about it? Well, join us on this radio station, podcast network, or via our Android app. So you've mentioned, we both mentioned kind of watching this in the contemporary time period, you know, in the middle of this coronavirus, you know, pandemic and supposed to be in quarantine and people listening and ignorance as you brought up before. So there was one part of the movie that really stood out to me that, you know, they have all seen that there is, is something right. They don't know what it is, but they have at this point seen the transformation. They have seen that something is going on. And when they're having their conversation about it, Childs is still kind of this denouncer about the situation, calling it voodoo bullshit. So right. even in the wake of something he has seen, he's not willing to believe that this is a threat. Meanwhile, you've got Wilford Brimley's character, you know, running the numbers and that there's a, a 75% chance of infection within the group. And if they get it out there, it will take 27,000 hours for world infestation if it gets back to, you know, main the mainland. And I, I just, that, that separation of belief and science, even in a film like this, the way that that's captured and yet it rings true, you know, s- 30 years later, almost 40 years later, we're seeing <laughs> examples of it out there in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't think Child's reaction is based off of his character being unintelligent or, I mean, it's just, I think it's just being overwhelmed. If you had taken Child's rather than Copper to the site to actually see the alien spacecraft as a mechanic, Child's probably would have come around. You would have had a different individual talking about it. Um, the the scene with the computer explaining the fact that it'll only take three years for the entire planet to be overrun was, a, I think, a late addition to help explain <laughs> audience, to audience members what the, what the stakes were. Right. Because if you think about it, if you were to take out all the scenes with the amazing special effects, it's essentially a group of men in a room talking. And that's sort of what the film is. Yeah, you know, and it's it's uh it's this argument back and forth of how to do things, but but that's sort of where we're at, right? It's it's you could think of it as the internet. What do we do? What do we? Well, we we go off in this group and we do this. Well, that didn't work. What if we try this? Well, you know, um, yeah, yeah, 
it's a it's an interesting film to pick apart. I feel like we're actually talking more about like the narrative and what it means rather than the film itself. I mean, like just just the, how this film is. So we talk about um, Alien, and you're talking about how it's it's picking them off one by one, and the creatures are keeping to the shadows. Rob Bottin really wanted this film to be shot with more shadows so that his special effects would look more realistic. You don't want to shine a, a bright light on it. You know, it's the it's the the Jaws effect, right? If you don't see the creature. Uh, you don't see the flaws in the creature. Right. Um, but Carpenter was like, no, 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 no. Are you kidding me? Look at this job that you're, you're 20 years old. You're 22 years old when he made this film. 22 right. years old. All those special effects. And with the exception of the dog thing in the kennel, which is a Rick Baker piece, um, I think at that point in time, Bettine was had been hospitalized for, due to exhaustion. Like the, the amount of work that they did, but they really make it right there in the open when you see the creature. I mean, and boy, those effects, my God, even today I was watching it. I've, again, I've seen this thing 30 something times and I'm watching it and I'm going, this is still so unbelievable. Like, how did they do this? Yeah. I mean, I, I, even in my notes, I like the, the, when Norris's chest opens up, it's just the best effect. And you're sitting there, you're you're, like, emotionally, I'm in two different places. Cause in one hand, I'm like, wow, that is still really impressive. And on the other hand, I'm like, Oh, poor doc, you know? (laughs) So, um, that scene is my introduction to this, this movie. I have this, it's one of my earliest memories. It's really kind of unfortunate, right? So I'm five years old and I'm sitting on the floor in my house and watching, like we had just gotten a TV, maybe it was six or seven, because we, we didn't have a TV for the first little chunk of my, my uh, life. And I don't know if we had H. I think we had HBO. And we had just gotten, you know those little boxes that you used to put on TV and it would suddenly give you HBO and you could like pay your installation guy to like get you one of those. And it was like, right. a, it was a cheap, yeah. right? You weren't actually paying for it. And there was a making of, and I don't know what I wanted to watch. I just remember I was playing with toys and a making of like, Coming on later tonight, it's John Carpenter's The Thing. And it just showed that scene. And I just remember, like, my little mind breaking. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and really just terrifying. me Because I was, like the rest of the world, kind of obsessed with E.T. when it came out. But E.T. terrified me. I hate that film. Like, I can't, I I get scared by E.T., to this day, that scene where they're running through the cornfield and like they put the flashlight in, he screams. I saw that out of every window at every dark evening uh, for <laughs> years afterwards. <laughs> I think that film, and then there was another with Stephen King's Cat's Eye. I think those are the two films that like terrified me the most as a child. I, that, but, but I do remember very clearly watching the chest bursting scene. I know calling it a chest burster is, is not correct, but you know, that's, that is essentially what we got. Yeah. Yeah. The, the visual effects still hold up pretty well. I mean, yes, they look like eighties visual effects, mm-hmm. but they, they could have been. And I know that, like there was some pitching of doing some stop motion effects and Carpenter said no, because he, he wanted them to look decent. And I, I think for the most part, they did a pretty good job with that. Yeah. The only stop motion you see is, um, the Blair beast towards the end, when we see the tentacles coming out of the floor, uh, that's stop motion. And as a Harryhausen fan, like I see stop motion and it never feels fake to me. It just, it's one of those things where like that actually just kind of warms my heart a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
when I when I see stop motion. I'm glad they did go that route because that it definitely would have pulled you out of the film. Uh, and I think the only time uh, the effects don't really work for me as well. And, and I think, you know, it's a sign of a fan. We have to be able to, to draw the negatives to the things that we love as well. When you're looking at the autopsies, whenever it's an actual human face, um, that feels masky to me more so. But like the dog effects or the alien effects or the tentacle effects or the many legged spider things or the eye socks, all that looks amazing. The face transformation stuff isn't quite as it doesn't hold up as much, but you can still have an appreciation for how brilliant that must have looked at the time. So a question for you, because I, I just read about this today, and I, I wish I had read about it a week ago before I revisited the movie. Apparently, you know, I just mentioned poor Doc, you know, he gets his arms chopped right. off, right? So apparently the way they did that effect is they had <laughs> a paraplegic come in uh, and and he's wearing a mask of the actor who plays the role. Yeah, but everybody is so focused on the limbs being bitten off and the the gore and stuff that they're not looking at the fact that this is a different person in a mask. Have you ever paid attention to that in that scene? Of course I have. As soon as I found out that fact, I, I watch it every single time. Um, so his his mouth is open in a scream, uh, you and you can't even tell. Yeah, I, I every single in fact every single time that scene's about to happen, I watch the face and you you can't tell. There's no there's no seams. It doesn't look fake. But if you if you aren't aware of that fact, there's just no way it looks like someone's arms have just been ripped off. You know, would have assumed it was green screen. As I said, I've I've not I hadn't read that in time to to revisit it. Now I'm going to have to remember that the next time I sit down and watch this movie because yeah, I find that fascinating. So you you mentioned this being about a bunch of guys, you know, basically talking. If you take out the gore, you take out the visual effects, right? And to me, the most tension this movie gets is the blood testing scene. Oh, and, and one it's, of the great scenes of all cinema. And it's not even because of the visual effects that the scene gets to eventually, but just because of the human interactions that are going on in that scene. And, and like, you know, we'll test you last, you right. know, because he knows for sure that he's one of them. I know I'm human. Some of you must be human too. Well, yeah. and, and Clark rushing Mac... Oh. And he, and he shoots him, right? Yeah, you know that it, like he's not screwing around, and just the tension in that scene. So you take away the visual effects, and you've got a movie about a bunch of guys talking to each other. But even that is crafted so well in that specific scene that it, it's just it's so. I mean, I know how the scene's going to turn out. I've seen the movie, uh, you know, a dozen times, and yet I still find myself totally enraptured by what's playing out on screen. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with how they've built up certain characters. This is one of those interesting films where they were given two weeks of rehearsal on a, right. on a stage, and they really individually built up relationships. They they talked as actors, and you, you, you listen to these interviews with the actors, and are like, you know, we we argued about who was infected and when we got infected. Like, because the script wasn't designed for people, like, at this point in time, no one's assuming, oh, you know, the VHS market is going to blow up and everyone's going to watch this for the next 40 years to argue about, you know, the chronology of, of infection. They wrote it to, like, no one is designed, the film is not designed to say, this is when this happened. It's not supposed to be, uh, uh, and then there were none. You're not supposed to figure out how it was done and, and when. And so it's supposed to be ambiguous, but what you get are these really cool 
relationships. For instance, Clark and Childs, the two physically biggest actors, they they basically said, when we're in a scene together, we're always going to be on opposite sides of the room. You know, like we're squaring off. But then right. we then we get Childs and McCready being kind of agitators towards one another, right? It's like that that twist. So when McCready, let's face it, murders uh, Clark, that's that's a big deal because he just killed somebody who I, as an audience member, until I got to like maybe the five or six times watching this point, I always forgot that he wasn't a creature because he seems like he would be the one, right? He was the one closest to the dogs. He's the one who isolates himself. He's clearly an introvert who gets along with animals better than he does with human beings. Like that's an, a choice that actor uh, decided on, right? So uh, when you find out that he was attempt, he thought that McCready, because we didn't even mention the fact that the thing is leaving clues for the other members of the camp to believe that McCready is in fact the thing like the ragged, the, the ripped up jacket. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like this is not just a, an, this is not an animal that can assume different shapes. This is a thinking creature with a hive mind that, that is working in not, there's, there's more than one of them. That that's the thing is it's, it's one creature, but it, it has different parts that are working in tandem, which is really cool. Well, and if you think about it, it's doing the opposite uh, with Blair. You know that, right. that my absolute my absolute favorite scene when they go out and you know he I've always it's one of those that I just quote for some reason just randomly of you know I'm ready to come back in now yeah you know yeah and and he's saying that and they're talking to him through this little gap in the door and you can see a noose there. And it's like, as an audience member, what you're supposed to read into it is he's starting to go, you know, stir crazy. He's got some cabin fever. He's ready to come into the main thing. And if he doesn't, he's going to hang himself. There's no doubt in my mind that he's human. Right. Yeah. And it's just the same as planting McCready's jacket in that it's a red herring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the what you are led to believe is that Blair is is human, but Blair is one of the first ones to be infected. So the whole chopping up the communications to keep, you know, I'm going to keep this place safe. We're on lockdown. We're not calling anybody in here. That's the that's the thing, tearing right. things apart, right? Like to keep, I'm I'm isolating you so I can I can take you apart one by one, or so that I can make myself uh, a flying another flying saucer, which is a crazy idea and it's taken directly from the book that's a short story like it is building a, a a ship to get to the mainland like it's it crashed it doesn't want to be there it's trying to get to civilization that's how it's going to do it it's not about being rescued it's about you know because if this thing this thing clearly can't be frozen to death that's the thing too if it kills everybody and burns in the snow it'll wait until the next group comes shows up like that's right. it's not really spoken uh, as much in, in this one, I mean, they, they mention it, but it really needs to be stressed is that the only way you're killing this thing is with fire. Shooting it doesn't do anything, right? Like the the Norwegians who are firing on the dog in the beginning of the movie, they're just trying to slow it down. That's what those grenades are for, the, the, <laughs> the thermal grenades. They need to burn this thing. That's clearly the only thing. But even then, that doesn't always work, right? Because the body that they brought in Right, from, the, from the fire. Off, yeah. And takes over Bennings. Oh boy, that scene with Bennings where they, they come in and Bennings is like wrapped up in tentacles and his, his body is covered in slime. And then he goes to runs off to get everybody. And then they find Bennings kind of walking 
walking in the snow. And that, that to me, like if you want to see one scene that just is so haunting is Bennings with his hands still haven't formed yet. And he goes to open his mouth and it just screams, but as they, they burn him with a flamethrower. Oh, so good. Yeah. Well, that, that sets us up perfectly to talk about the ending. Yeah. Let's so do that. you do have the camp, you do have the camp, you know, literally a flame, you know, everything's on fire and, you know, McCready has unfortunately had to take out all of his, his fellow men and he's done. I mean, he's, he's definitely injured himself and then child shows up. Yeah. Child's who we haven't seen in forever. Right. And you have that great line from McCready about, you know, whatever the case, I don't think either of us are in any shape to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. How originally think back to when you first saw this movie or the first couple of times you saw this movie before the advent of the internet and, and that public consciousness and that kind of stuff. How did you interpret the ending? You sneaky bastard. All right. Um, so the first, <laughs> the first time I saw this, I assumed child's was, was a thing. Okay. Um, cause I was, I was 20 years old probably when I first saw this, I didn't, I didn't watch it. It's just the weirdest thing. Like as much as I love horror movies now, I was really freaked out by them as a young kid. I just, and, and I was really a sci-fi person. And while this is a sci-fi movie, the, the gore factor of it, I think turned me off from it. And then I just started watching all the movies I should have watched in the late seventies, early eighties, early nineties. Um, so I definitely, definitely thought it was child's, but then as I got a little older and I started reading into the paranoia of everything, I'm like, doesn't this make so much more sense that they're both human? And they're both going to die for nothing because they can't trust each other. And then the internet comes along and then you're, you, you, there's a thousand and one theories about how you're supposed to interpret it. John Carpenter has said one thing and then, you know, then he changed, he recanted that and said another thing. And then 2002 comes along and the video game comes along and the video game, which is supposed to be canon, says another thing. So yeah, the video game says they're both human at the yes. end and Carpenter says that's canon. But then he comes out a couple years later and points out that if you pay attention to that scene, you can see that one of them is breathing and one of them is not. Yes. But if you pay attention to that scene, you can still so clearly that Keith David is, in fact, breathing. You can see his breath in one shot, but it doesn't look that way um, yeah. for most part. But there, but yeah, that's the thing is like, oh God, I remember hearing that or reading it on some message boards and like they're late nineties, early two thousands and trying to be like, Oh, well, if you, you'll notice uh, you never see his breath. And then I watched it and went, no, you can see his breath. Like you can see it in one shot, but like, he's also clearly the closest to the fire and backlit. So it's going to be harder to see that. I think there's, there's a more compelling argument in that um, the thing doesn't replicate the clothing. Uh, it only uh, replicates organic stuff. And Childs is wearing an earring. Uh, oh. so it can't replicate that unless it st stabs the earring. So maybe he's not. There's another theory that says that McCready knows that the thing probably doesn't know what alcohol tastes like. Uh, and he's been taking those J and B bottles and making Molotov cocktails the entire time. When he hands the bottle to Childs, Childs takes a swig and doesn't react. And McCready laughs and there's no reason for him to laugh. The internet has, has guessed that the, the thing as child has just swallowed gasoline and McCready's going to blow him up, you know, that kind of a thing. Like, but it doesn't matter because that, that we have no definitive answers. And I think that's what makes this such an impressive film because we can still have this argument. It doesn't matter who said what, 
I think they're both human. You may think that Childs is, is a thing. And it works both ways, right? Like it, like we can, I think, find reasons to pros and cons for each argument. And that's, yeah, absolutely. that's, that's great. Yeah, I love that kind of ambiguity. Uh, mm -hmm. That's probably one of my absolute favorite things about this movie is that we're not given the answer. And I personally like to think that Carpenter is just having a field day by screwing with fans by giving them a different answer every couple of years. Because the, it, all it does is it keeps interest in the movie high. It keeps them asking every couple of years and he gives them another answer and it just kindles the flames for the next conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not something that Carpenter is just coming up with on its own. I mean, you listen to him and you listen to the, the actors. They were having this conversation during filming. Right. You know, like they they didn't want to have a definitive answer one way or the other because that sort of kills the fun. Yeah. That's like, you know, taking the sequels to the Tremors films. It's so much better where you don't know the Tremors comes from. Like what where, where do Graboids come from? It doesn't matter where Graboids come from. So it makes that film one of the reasons it makes that film <laughs> so amazing. You oh, they're genetically altered by the military. There's no reason to watch the sequels. Sorry, that's my Tremors rant. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to chat about before we move into the closing credits here? Oh, um, no, because if I start, uh, <laughs> I'm probably not going <laughs> to stop. So let's let's. I think we've talked about Dean Cundey's amazing cinematography, Rob Boutin's amazing work. The story is great. Yeah, no, I think we I think we've covered a lot. All right. Uh, all right. So first up, we've got the algorithm says this is a list of movies. Various algorithms say you will like because you like the thing. So this is kind of a lightning round of responses. You like this movie. You don't like this movie. You don't see how they're connected. And you certainly have a couple of their those in here. Although maybe you'll see the connection where I don't. <laughs> OK. All right. So first up, Halloween. Well, I mean, clearly it's John Carpenter, though. Uh, there was, I think, in some of the original drafts, a more Halloween slasher esque to this. Like you know, some of the deaths were, it, it kills people with uh, weapons. One of the, one of the one of the members of the outpost was supposed to be uh, skewered by a shovel in the door, with, you know, kind of mimicking the uh, the the door stabbing scene from Halloween. Yeah, well, and I, and I hate to interrupt my own show here, but we didn't even talk about the Drew Struzan poster which oh. he created without ever having seen a frame of the movie. And originally right. John Carpenter hated it hated and it, yeah. said they, they might as well have just put a, a knife in his hand because it looked like a slasher film. Yeah. And I think that's probably really unfortunate for Carpenter because when you're known for one thing, uh, you know, that being Halloween, though he had done so many really kind of fun parts. Um, but also if you think about like the fog, right. Preceded this, it is essentially a, a supernatural slasher. Uh, yeah, story. It's still a good film, you know. It really it blows me away how much uh, of a, my childhood John Carpenter was responsible for. Oh yeah, I totally understand that. Yeah. All right. Uh, they live. Um. Okay. Well, I mean, so again, another Carpenter film. Brilliant. Talk about like you know we talk about how kind of prescient this film is as far as the um the quarantine but they live my god 2016 basically should have just been a they live movie um if you haven't seen they live i i, I don't want to really say anything else and just go and watch that film uh the the best meme i've seen about that said you know if you can't understand why people don't want to wear a mask watch the 10 minute fight between roddy yeah. piper and keith david trying to get him to put on the damn sunglasses <laughs> that's so true yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all right no, let's move great. away from carpenter films uh Please. needful things 
Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't. I have I, no idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen Needful Things. That's Max, Max von Sydow, right? And yes. I know the Stephen King story about the devil sets up shop. Now I can only think of Rick and Morty uh, when I think about that. Setup. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't. I don't see the connection to that. Yeah, that's a that's a monkey paw thing, not really a a thing thing. Okay, Alien. I mean, we we've spent probably ten minutes comparing this to that one. <laughs> oh God, what a beautiful film! But uh, yeah, no, it's it's very clear that the the DNA of Alien has its roots in who goes there, and clearly, John Carpenter's The Thing shares quite a few similarities, and and I think mainly to when they pitched this film and, and audiences first watched it before of its popular release, I, I think people were comparing it both favorably and unfavorably to alien. And I think the producers of the film were definitely like, let's make this more alien like, and they did change some things there, You listen to the interviews. Uh, you know, one of the reasons this film was released when it was, was the studio, which is universal uh, was making cat people. And that was, it's going to be its big shiny horror, scary film. Oh God. And, <laughs> and because this film was supposed to be released later in the year, you know, in winter, that's the, kind of the whole point, right? Like, why would you release this film in the summer? It's not a popcorn film. Um, but cat people was, was kind of crashing and burning. And they're like, well, we already have a horror film slated. Let's just do that. So that's one of the reasons why the poster was done kind of overnight. Uh, because it, it, it didn't have the engine uh, to kind of really pimp this film correctly. They just sort of said, well, uh, it's ready. We'll throw a couple of things out there. I mean, Carpenter wouldn't let anyone take pictures of any of the effects. He wanted it to be a surprise. So, yeah. All yeah. right. Blade Runner. Well, I mean, okay. They were released on the same day, right? Like, so right. Opening, <laughs> opening weekend Blade Runner came in second to ET. Uh, I want to say the thing came in either seventh or eighth for the week. Both of them, it's hard to even conceive of this. God, what a great year 82 was. Um, but both of them were commercial failures. They were both flops, and, and now they're cult classics. Though I will say this. I think The Thing holds up much better than Blade Runner. I agree. I definitely agree with that. All right, uh, The Terminator. Um... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, mean, I, think, was, I think we've reached a point in the list where it's a lot of these, the thing, the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> so you've liked movies that start with the, I mean, the Terminator almost feels like the antithesis. Um, sure. You've got something that is constantly marching forward and cannot be stopped. And that's, that's what a good horror movie is, right? Like feeling actually, uh, well, I'll, I'll finish my thought here and I want to tell you another thought. Um, but because we don't have action heroes, right? I feel like the alien and the Terminator have more in common than the thing and Terminator do um, in that you have something that's constantly stalking you and a woman rises up to take care of it. I have been had a really hard time watching horror movies, a, a genre I love, but during this outbreak, uh, it's really difficult for me to watch it because it is about feeling powerless in the yes. face of something greater than yourself. I've been watching almost, I've been watching detective shows and reading detective stories because that's about solving problems. Um, well, that's a good point. Yeah. See, I've jumped really deep into superheroes. I've gone back and um, making my way through the whole MCU, you know, films. Yeah. And I get that. So, I get that. Like, yeah, a lot of the stories and stuff I've been thinking about writing is about heroes overcoming this great challenge. And I was trying to imagine what it would be like to 
to suddenly have powers and be able to help the world. Um, watching things like this is <laughs> so depressing. Uh, <laughs> oh, what a biological life form is overtaking everybody one by one, even if they're not showing signs of it. Uh, I don't know where that that's, that's not applicable to real life. Um, <laughs> All right. The Shining. It's funny. I've been thinking about The Shining a lot. And there's a film that I really liked as a, as a young film student uh, that I just feel like talk about diminishing returns. Every time I watch the shining, I think I like it less every time I watch it. <laughs> um, there is actually more in its DNA to the thing where you are talking about isol- films of isolation and paranoia um, and being stuck in the elements that I get. Okay. But, I can see um, that. But I just feel like The Shining never really. I know there are probably people shaking their fists at their their whatever their audio podcasting devices are. When I say it, just uh, yeah, I, what a film that just is all atmosphere and almost no plot. <laughs> like, I, I, think, I think it's a really beautifully directed film. Uh, it's visually stunning, but I get so bored by that movie now. It really like I just not enough is going on. Um, but I'm not a fan of it. So I, I, I mean, I, I, I've said before, you know, I think it's a good movie. It's not the shining, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, Stephen King's the shining. It's not the same thing. It's right. And I, I agree with you. It's very visually interesting, but yeah, I, I, I get that. I've had arguments with uh, years and years ago, uh, with people about what's actually happening in the shining in the same way that I've had discussions and, and or arguments with people like what the chronology of, of the infection in the thing where like, you know, there's a, there's a lot more symbolism uh, I think to be found in the shining, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The sixth sense. Um, I see almost nothing, <laughs> nothing in comparison. <laughs> I do like the sixth sense. And I think actually it's not a film that I could rewatch over and over again because once you once you kind of know the ending, it sort of takes the sting out of it. But I think it's a actually very well put together film. Uh, maybe <laughs> I've been comparing everything to the thing. I haven't really been telling you whether I like it or not. But um, no, it's all uh, good. Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you like the thing, you will probably like the six. All of these films are things that I, on the whole, I think with the exception of maybe needful things, I like. Um, so the algorithm isn't wrong. Uh, I just you know comparing it to the thing is a little little off. All right, last two uh, where I feel like it gets really weird. Um, yes, please. Fargo. Okay, well, that's just winter, right? <laughs> no. Okay, wait a second. Uh, if Hateful Eight's not on, is your next one on the list, I'm, I'm going to be surprised. But um, I could kind of see Fargo, actually, in, in a sense. But where, I mean, it clearly diverges is the overall intent of the film rather than the mood and atmosphere. But I do like Fargo. It's a good film. Oh, yeah. yeah. And finally, Train Spotting. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those weeks for the uh, algorithm, I guess. <laughs> he suffers from a lack of moral fiber. Well, yeah, he knows a lot about Sean Connery. Knowing a lot about Sean Connery is hardly for lack of moral fiber. Um, so uh, my wife and I are re-watching all of Elementary, uh, starring Johnny Lee Miller, obviously who played Sick Boy. What a phenomenal and underappreciated actor Johnny Lee oh, Miller Oh, I love is. Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah. yeah. All right. Hateful Eight uh, wasn't on this list. Are you kidding me? That's... Nope. It didn't show up anywhere. <laughs> but but you see the, the comparisons to uh, the thing, right? Like Hateful oh, yeah. Eight is, is the thing as a Western. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's Agatha Christie. 
It is. It is. You're absolutely right. And, you know, Kurt Russell, you've got uh, the camp, you've got Ennio Morricone, who, who actually won the Academy Award for, for his score for that one. Yeah. All right. We always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. You ready? Oh, bring it on. Yeah. You're, you, 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 <laughs> I'm not saying you've talked about half the stuff on here, but <laughs> all right. Don't number one. Choice, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Number one, the producers used real animal organs for the autopsy scene, a choice that made many cast members squeamish. According to director John Carpenter, who was the single cast member not affected by the real organs? A, Kurt Russell. B, oh, Wilford, Wilford Brimley. Brimley. It is Wilford Brimley. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Wilford Brimley. Uh, <laughs> Wilford Brimley didn't particularly like the the film, but um, apparently he had a ranch uh, yes. and had had you know he was used to gutting animals, so it was uh, it wasn't a big deal for him. Nope. All right. Number two, the film did not perform well commercially when it was originally released. The producers felt part of the lack of success was due to the overwhelming success of what other recent release? E.T. Yeah. E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Aliens. Yes. Which, interestingly enough, Richard Mazur, who plays Clark, he turned down a role in E.T. to work on the thing. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, and also Poltergeist, which he was a, uh, a part of. Right. And, and so yes. that one was is another film that they were comparing this film to, you know, here's a way you could do scary without going overboard. <laughs> All right. Number three, an alternate ending was shot, but never used, not even in test screenings. The alternate ending revealed what? Oh, uh, McCready getting rescued. Yes. Uh, can you point me to the way of a hot meal, <laughs> but you got to give me more than that. Okay. Um, is it McCready and Childs both getting? No. Saved? It's McCready is rescued and is proven to be oh human, human. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the video yeah. game also, by the way, you you find that McCready is human. Childs apparently died. Um, they were both human, and McCready survives and and will talk to you during the video game. All right, and the last one, Ennio Morricone would make would earn a Razzie nomination for his score for the thing which he deliberately attempted to make sound like a Carpenter score. Unused material from this same score would be reused and win him an Oscar for what later film? <laughs> it's late, yeah. There, there, you, there go. you go. All right. Fantastic job, man. All right, so uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Oh, okay. I don't have a particularly big social media presence, um, but I do a monthly Doctor Who podcast called Who and Company. So we, we bring on someone we know through Doctor Who. Sometimes they're the actors from the shows. We've had writers, we've had directors, we've had stunt people, special effects, other podcasters and the like. Uh, so that can be found. Uh, we drop those at the end of every month. So that's Who and Company. I have recently started working on a new role-playing project uh, with some groups. Uh, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking more about the role-playing game itself, which I'm not going to do other than to say it is a Western uh, is a space Ooh. Western that involves dinosaurs. Uh, and so once that pitch was given to me, I jumped on it uh, toot sweet. But I will say that if you do like role-playing games, their weekly podcast, which is called On a Roll, is really well done. And as a 35-year veteran, I still find that I learn something uh, every time I listen to it. And I've only been listening to it for about two or three months. But um, as soon as I was introduced to this group, I was like, I'm, I want in, please. Let's let's do something together. <laughs> so, so those are the two things. And I mean, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm, I'm at Drew M. Meyer. That's M-E-Y-E-R. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I don't tweet often. When I do, it's usually about role-playing games, Doctor Who, or movies. 
<laughs> which are all really good things. <laughs> I like, you know, the things I like. All right, man. I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation about the thing. Uh, I, I, we probably could easily have talked for another two hours about aspects of this movie, but uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for doing it. Hey, we didn't even talk about the third The Thing movie that 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 was made. Uh, so yeah, you know. Wait, um, wait, 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 wait. What? <laughs> if you're not familiar with Terror Express, meaning Cushing and uh, a couple other, no, I mean it's it's based off of Who Goes There rather than The Thing, but it's it's um, imagine the thing on a train. Uh, I'm in. I'm in. (laughs) All right, man. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Tell me what you think happens at the end of the thing, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess, T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S on Twitter and Letterboxd, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook, where I Have Not Seen This podcast, or you can always email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next Next week's episode where we take a look at the bat, the cat, and the penguin. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks again to Drew for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.